Good afternoon and welcome to the Pittsburgh Current Podcast. I am Pittsburgh Current Editor and Publisher Charlie Deitch and we have a really good show for you today. Um, we also got really good content for you uh, on our website at www.pittsburghcurrent.com and on our socials at PGH Current. Our new issue comes out on Tuesday and we're going to have several stories on the Deutschtown Music Festival which is coming your way uh, on July, tw- starting July 12th. Um, also July 12th, part of the Deutschtown Music Festival is our birthday party, best year ever. See, what we did there is it's our only year ever, but you know, we feel like, we feel like it's, it's, it's a good benchmark to, to try and follow up on. Um, but that's at the Flashlight Factory and the bands you will hear. It's a free event. You need to register online. Go to our website or Facebook event page and you can register online. Uh, the show features Identity X, uh, hip hop artist Momo Nadon, and um, very excited, just added to the show. Um, R&B soul singer Sierra Sellers, fantastic! You gotta, um, you gotta come out and see Sierra again. It's a free show, uh, free food, free drink. You just gotta sign up online um, at our Facebook at our Facebook uh, event page. So our guest today, Gerald Dickinson, is a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh, focusing on among other things constitutional law and affordable housing. Uh, law and policy. He's also a product of the county foster care system, a husband, father, and now a congressional ca- congressional candidate in District 18. He'll be taking on the entrenched Democratic incumbent Mike Doyle in the 2020 primary. He just raised for his first uh, fundraising uh, cycle um, more than $100,000, just like I said, in the first quarter alone. Today, he's also a guest on the Pittsburgh Current Podcast. Jerry Dickinson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So before we talk about the campaign and the fundraising, um, you have a, I was you know, uh, doing my homework, look, reading up on you. Um, and one of the things I found interesting was um, you entered the county's foster care system in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit, and by the 1990s, I should say it was a large foster family. Mm-hmm. By the 1990s, 11 of the foster children who entered the Dickinson house had been, were adopted by the Dickinsons. You being you being one of those. Um, what was that experience like for you growing up? What do you what do you sort of remember about the early years of that, and how has that shaped who you are today? Sure, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I <clears throat> back in the nineteen eighties, uh, I came out of the orphans court division and mm-hmm. the foster care system. Um, uh, both my biological parents, my mother was a white woman, my father was African American. Mm-hmm. Um, both um, uh, unable to take care of me. Right. Uh, and I entered into the foster care system, uh, bounced around to several shelters at a very early age and then ended up in a large, uh, we like to say, multiracial yeah. Brady Bunch family, uh, right. complex Brady Bunch family uh, <laughs> in, the, in the North Hills in Shady right. Township. Uh, so there's 11 children altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, of the 11, um, three left early back to their parents and, and of the remaining eight over uh, five, 10, 15 year span of time. Mm-hmm. Those eight were adopted by uh, by Robert and Judy Dickinson, my oh. my adoptive parents. Um, uh, my adoptive parents were white. They both grew up in McKeesport uh, uh, back in the 40s and 50s yeah. uh, and then uh, uh, left for Shaler Township. And uh, we grew up in a small ranch house. Uh, wow. And uh, so as you can imagine, 11 children and, and then, of course, the eight um, adoptive um, it was it was a little bit crammed. <laughs> That's right. We had gender segregated, right? You know, we had bunk yeah, beds, right? right. And wow. You, you're bringing all these um, kids together, and uh, it was wild. But you know, um, we all came from difficult backgrounds, yeah. right? 
you all came with some baggage, all of us, sure. uh, you know, malnourishment, uh, neglect, abandonment, right? right? Or, you know, there was a reason why sure. we were pulled away uh, from our from our natural um, settings. Um, and, and as a result of that, uh, you know, you do foster kids and adoptive kids have have um, struggles when we yeah. all struggled with issues as we as we grew up. Um, my my adoptive parents, they are absolutely amazing people. Yeah. Uh, to do what they did. They are, uh, in many ways, the true public servants to, to put their life aside right? Uh, and to help kids in need. And we were in need uh, of a shelter, of a roof over our head. Uh, and they're amazing people. They're still they're still alive. Um, they still live in Shaler Township. Wow. Um, you had, if you had a chance to meet them, they are the like most loving individuals sure. and caring people. Um, they are absolutely amazing. And, you know, in many ways, they, they saved my life, yeah. right? How old were you when you when you entered the foster system? Uh, it just within months, actually. Wow. Uh, I was uh, in a rare circumstance, not so much rare, but I was never going to go back to my biological parents. Sure. So it was, it was uh, a swift uh, termination termination of parental rights right. and heading into the foster care system. So I ended up at the home by um, <clears throat> January of uh, 2000, uh, January in, 19, in the 1980s. And then, of course, um, from there, stayed at the foster home. And uh, so it was great. And back yeah. in the 1980s, actually, the uh, Pittsburgh Press uh, yes. wrote up a, a fascinating story about my, my parents' uh, work in the foster care system. Uh, Roger Stewart actually uh yeah. was a writer at the time for the pittsburgh press wrote up that 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 fascinating spread and it really gave context to the difficulties right. that that a lot of us had and and uh the difficulties even my parents had in trying to mm -hmm. you know provide for in uh, all the needs of the kids but um it, it was fascinating as a result you, you talk about you know how does this shape sure. one's worldview it fundamentally shapes my worldview and how i see the world right and largely because um, you know, we struggled. Um, significant number of my foster and adoptive brothers and sisters um, either ran away from the home at an early age or were forced out because of behavioral problems. Um, and so throughout my childhood and adulthood, I've been intimately associated with and closely tied to issues of poverty, yeah. right? Incarceration, uh, addiction, uh, the social welfare system, uh, joblessness, homelessness, um, these are my family members who are affected by yeah. these problems and these issues. And, uh, and so we are, you know, we are a resilient bunch. Right. Let's put it that way. We've, we've been fighting our entire life to, 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 to succeed. Yeah. yeah. On your website, um, something that caught my eye, which you said of your, of your family, of your siblings, that you embody the social and economic soul of America. Mm. You explain that a little bit. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Sure. Is it, is it, I, I assume, you know, as in all families, kids go different ways. They, they take different paths. Right. Is that, you know, when you have such a, a diverse family that I assume it was, is it, that's what you mean, right? It's, it's just the path you took and the, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. The path we took, I mean, look, we are, um, a mixed bunch. We have lived in trailer parks. Yeah. We've received public housing subsidies. We've uh, been waitresses and bartenders. Yeah. Um, uh, war veterans. Um, you know, we've been jitney drivers. Yeah, uh, and and that those experiences amongst all of us, because we're so yeah. closely tied to each other. Sure, um, that allows us to peer into worlds that many other people may not be able to peer right. into and understand and empathize with and have compassion for. Right. Uh, but also, you look at those issues, and they're permeating here in the 18th congressional district. Right. But you look at those issues, and you say, "How can I change the world?" Right. I see it happening right there. Yeah. It's my sister. 
or it's my brother. Yeah. Uh, incarceration, criminal justice system. That's that's my brothers, yeah. right? White brother and the black brother who, right. who have been affected by this system, right? How can I change yeah. that? What can I do to take that personal experience and then make change at the federal level, congressional yeah. level, right? Or you, you level? say you said the word you, every time you said that you said the word we. You didn't say he. You didn't say she. You said we. Yeah. It's almost like you sort of have that ingrained sort of am I my brother's keeper kind of a kind of a situation like like the bond that you have with your yeah. siblings. No, this it is seems us. like it really just sort of like that's right. This yeah, is us. This exactly. Is, this, is, yeah. this is this is a, a team effort. Yeah. Right. And we um, we lean on each other's shoulders. Yeah. I lean on my sister's shoulder, who's who's you know a cab driver. Yeah. And she leans on my shoulder. Right. We see eye to eye. Yeah. Uh, on issues and um, and we're there to support each other. Um, and uh, that's that's extremely important uh, for understanding what we're up against in this country, understanding the problems that that are ongoing. Right. And then learning and knowing how to unite around those problems and solving them. And I think you know, my family's circumstances are um, just a microcosm yeah. of, of a lot of that. What made you decide to get into this race? I mean, Mike Doyle, I think we're looking at 25 years, give or take, yeah. uh, as he's been in office. What made you decide to to jump in this race at this time? Is this, is running for public office something you always thought you'd do, or just a new sort of idea for you? Um, this is not a reactionary campaign. This yeah. is um, a project. Sure, it's been um, long thought out project of becoming a lawyer, right? right. Uh, a law professor, understanding the law, understanding social issues, being a public advocate, being a lawyer uh, for the people, right? Uh, and then knowing that the next step is to take it to Washington, D.C. as a legislator, right? Uh, and take my personal experiences growing up in the environment that I grew up in, sure. but then the professional experiences as being a lawyer uh, and, a, and a law professor and then utilizing that skill set in Washington, D.C. to right. make change. Uh, so this has been a, a long-term project. It's not just a reactionary um, uh, campaign. Sure. Do you feel like um, Do you feel like the time, because we've... We've experienced this, especially at the last two elections at the state level and even the, the county, the local level, we've experienced um, uh, first-time candidates with a new message, with a new level of excitement for the jobs that have, again, we're not talking about, you know, they beat, you know, one-term incumbents. These are people who beat yeah. in deeply entrenched candidates. Yep. Do you feel, did that help you sort of in your decision of, it sounds like it was a, it was a decision of when, not if. Did that help? Do you feel sort of a turning of the tides in, sure. in that kind of thing? Absolutely. No, yeah. what, what's, this campaign is about why we can't wait for change. Yeah. We can't wait any longer for change, right? We can't wait another two years or four right. years or, or six years. Um, there are, we're, we're in uncharted territory in this country right now. Right. We have a constitutional crisis uh, in Washington, D.C., we have our democratic institutions are being threatened. Our constitutional norms are being uh, destroyed. Uh, the rule of law is being flouted yeah. by the president every day. And that's a crisis that uh, we haven't dealt with uh, for a long time as right. a country. So that's new. And then we have other crises at the ground level. We have a housing crisis. Right. Skyrocketing housing prices. People are being gentrified and displaced out of their neighborhood, out of yeah. their homes. They can't keep up with their rent. They can't save enough money to buy a home, right? Uh, that's unsustainable. We have a crisis of the criminal justice system. Uh, we have a system of mass incarceration instead of mass rehabilitation. Right. We are spending billions of dollars, federal and state tax dollars, to throw people behind bars and let them rot. We don't 
put resources into uh, rehabbing them and reforming them. And of course, what happens when they get out, the recidivism rate is quite high and they go right back in. Right. right? And that system is absolutely unsustainable. Uh, we have the uh, minimum wage debate. Right? We can't wait. Again, this campaign's about why we can't wait for right. change. We can't wait 10, 15 years for $15 minimum wage. Right. We need it now. Right? Uh, we need to have leaders who are on the front lines uh, and legislators and congressmen and women who are pounding the pavement on these issues and saying, we, got, we have to do this now. Right? We need a pathway to a single-payer program. Right? We need to figure that out right now. Right. It's not about waiting two, four, five, six years. Because you know what? At the end of the day, there are millions of people who also across this country, they're not waiting either. Right. And I'm not waiting. And that's why we're doing this. That's why Absolutely. we're moving forward. All right. There's a lot to unpack there. And I have it all in my notes. But one thing I want to get to for I had this yep. at the end, but let's get to it first because I think it's very important because this is your this is your this is your your wheelhouse. Um the constitutional crisis that you talked about. Yeah. Um how do you as um a professor of law, someone who's who uh has made it your sort of um your mission to learn and teach the constitution? Um <laughs> how do you deal with how do you deal how first of all, before you say how do we deal? What has been your reaction? Like, I think we all, especially, I, I definitely certainly get the progressive vibe from you uh, as well as myself. Um, <laughs> as you're just watching this, and we, we all knew that we all knew the Trump administration was not going to be a good thing. We just didn't know maybe how bad. Yeah. Now, you're right. a law professor. You've, you, you know constitutional law. Explain to me a little bit what goes through your mind as someone who understands the Constitution mm-hmm. more than, than, um, than, than, the, than the, average, the average person. How did you? What was it like for you to see this unfold? And at what point did you realize you know, we have a problem? Yeah, um, you know, campaign promises are one thing. Yeah, taking action is another. So we're, when I really, I mean, the campaign, uh, Tr- Donald Trump's campaign for pres- for the presidency was problematic. Sure. Everything he was saying was concerning. Yep. But then the question is, okay, is what's going to happen when he gets in the office? What what? made me realize that we were in uncharted territory was uh, in January 2017. Uh, President Trump signed Executive Order 13767 on January 25th. Uh, he then signed another executive order on the 27th of January, the travel ban. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the prior executive order was on the border wall. So he said, you know what? We're going to move forward with this massive contiguous wall along the southwest border. And by the way, we are going to ban uh, – uh, uh, residents and people from uh, predominantly Muslim nations, right. seven, into the country. So there he took his campaign promises and he was actually taking action on it. And that's when I realized we, we now we're in a fight. Right. Uh, and I took action myself. Uh, and uh, shortly after that executive order 13767, uh, I drafted up uh, and sent the Washington Post an editorial, mm-hmm. uh, a legal opinion on Trump's wall. And it was published in the Sunday section. Uh, uh, in January uh, in, in 2017, and the argument was that look, if we're going to talk about building a wall, we have to talk about the land acquisition issues along the southwest border. Are we going to be able to actually do this? Right. right. But then also the moral questions of whether or not that is appropriate. Um, and it that that editorial changed the national conversation about the wall. Right. It informed the the American people that um, we're up against uh, uh, something we haven't been up against for a long time. Um, and, and from there, in a very unanticipated way, from there I got a phone call from uh, Senator Claire McCaskill's office right. uh, staff uh, who, who wanted more information about this and then invited me to submit testimony uh, before the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. And I did. I, I provided expert testimony and submitted it to them. And, um, and so ever since then, I've just become this 
national leading expert on right. all different aspects of the Trump administration executive actions, right. whether it be the National Emergencies Act, which was recently uh, declared back yeah. in February. Um, to go to your, the, your point about what, how, what, I, what I'm seeing is that part of the problem is uh, Congress has delegated enormous power to the executive branch right. over the last 50, 60 years, right? And out of this idea that the, the executive would execute the laws faithfully. Right. Well, here we are with a president who's not willing to do that. And he's going to take advantage of the powers that he ha- now has. Right. And so while the decisions that are made by Trump uh, are, uh, I think, many times unconstitutional, uh, we also have to look at members of Congress. Sure. And see what they have been doing, but they haven't been doing. Right. To fight this fight and what they've done in the past to allow Trump right. to come in and do and take the actions he's, he's taking. Does a lot of that stem from partisan politics in terms of depending on who was in the White House at the time, depending on who was in charge of the House at the time? Is that what we saw? Because it, we, we certainly probably can't blame one party or the other. I mean, it was it mm-hmm. seems like it's something that um, that both parties had done again, depending on who was sitting in the White House. And then, so we have this cumulative effort where, or this cumulative action where we're sitting there now. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, for the average American, we're sitting here and saying, okay, he's denying, you know, uh, he's denying subpoenas from the Senate. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, signing these executive orders because he can't get his way. Where's our system of checks and balances that is sure. supposed to take care of this? Sure. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, you look back at the Obama administration, and yeah. Obama had a very similar problem. That is, he couldn't get, uh, say, immigration policy through right. the legislative process, couldn't get it through the House, getting through Senate. So right. what did he do, of course? Well, he signed executive orders uh, yeah. on DACA right. or DAPA, right? Uh, and, and he was able to do that because Congress delegated that power to him. And again, same situation here with Trump. Congress delegates broad sweeping authority for Trump to take certain actions. Right. And he's going to utilize that because for the border wall, he can't right. get it through the legislative process. So what does he do? Right. Declares a national emergency. And what's the problem with that law, of course? Well, well, Congress, um, they, 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 it was a blank slate, right? They just kind of said, well, you can declare a national emergency. We're not going to tell you what is an emergency. <laughs> just right. go ahead and do it. Right. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I, I often say this is the, this is the Nike president. Just do it. Like he just, he yeah. just says this typical presidents will say, well, I don't know whether I should do this or not. He just says, you know what? I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And there, that's, that's not a good place for us to be right now. With yeah, Donald there's, Trump. N- there's no little voice that says, you know, I can do it, but should I do it? There's yeah. just no, there's, I want to do it. So I do it kind right. of a thing. Right. Um, so segues perfectly into the fact that you're running for Congress. Yeah. So what is, what, what can, what can a Congress person do? And what would you plan to do um, to try – is rolling back those powers, is that something that, that needs to happen or, 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 or changing the – Certainly, lawsuit? yeah. Certainly rolling back some of those powers, uh, tightening some of the uh, statutory provisions yeah. that allow this broad authority for the president. Of course, that would be something uh, that would be uh, a top priority for me sure. as, as a congressman um, but because you know, we, we – you know, this national emergencies declaration, for example, Trump has over 100 different statutes that he can trigger. Sure. By declaring national emergency, moving money around to the yeah. military, for example, right? That needs to be uh, cleaned up and, yeah. and restricted uh, in many ways. So, yes, that that is something I would be looking at as a congressman. Um, but at the same time, too, just being a loud voice, okay? Um, we are in an era, as I mentioned, uncharted territory yeah. where it is simply not good enough just to vote the right way. Right. It's not good enough to be a party uh, uh, foot soldier. It's not good enough to just vote the party line. You have to be on the front lines pounding the pavement right. in Washington, D.C. on these issues that matter. And as a congressman, that's what I would do. We are in a safe blue district. 
Uh, America should know the name of the representative from the 18th Congressional District. It must be the loudest voice. Yeah. We know the Maxine Waters of the world, the Barbara Lees, they are the loudest voices because they're in safe blue districts and they use the bully pulpit. And that's what we need in this district. Right. Uh, for so, for for our, for our, uh, our representative. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you. So let's talk a little bit about. And I was actually not as eloquent as you said, but that sort of was the way, what I was going to ask. Was um, I assume that that's what you meant when we talk about when you kind of generically talked about representatives not doing what they can? I assume on some level at least we're talking about Mike Doyle. Um, is it? And and you know I I I don't I haven't done any research, so I don't I don't want to. Throw, um, you probably have. I'm sure Darren has. Um, I don't. I don't want to throw out too much. Uh, 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 too many assumptions, but um, certainly he is a safe party vote for the party leadership. In fact, when there was a a movement to uh, to perhaps change, in my my opinion, you know, I'm not a I'm not a right wing Nancy Pelosi hater, but I felt like, hey, this was a time that maybe we show the American public that, uh, you know, we hear you. So let's, let's go ahead and change that leadership. Let's, let's do something different. Yep. And it didn't happen. You do have these long-term incumbents who they're so entrenched and they're so sort of tangled with the, with the partisan politics. Um, is that something that you see from Mike Doyle? Uh, you know, look, I, like this is a, this is what the people want, yeah. right? I mean, sure. this campaign is about the people. And we'll get into talking about the the individual contributions yep. that we're receiving. Um, and this is what the people want. They right. want institutional change. They want leaders in Congress who are going not to necessarily just vote the right way, but they actually go beyond that and say, I've got new innovative ideas, by right. the way, creative ideas. Let's push the envelope on this now. And as I mentioned, again, this is a campaign about uh, why uh, we can't wait for change. Let's do this now yeah. instead of waiting. Uh, and and unfortunately, uh, in the world of uh, Washington D.C., um, you know, the longer you're there, the more entrenched you will become. Yeah. Uh, and that is just uh, that is the name of the game. That's business as usual, but that shouldn't be business as usual, right? right? That's where we're going to exactly. change that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so I think you know that's that's where we need to have our mindset in going into this congressional race. Uh, that generational change, 21st century leader who's willing to uh, fight this fight. And that's what we're up against, a fight. This is going to be a long-term fight. Right. This isn't like four years from now, it's all going to be over and things are going to be just fine. No, no, this is a generational fight. I want right. to make sure that this country is a better place for my daughter, for my wife, for my siblings, for my family. Uh, and you've got to have someone there who understands and, and has felt the pain and then also can do something to to uh, uh, fix that yeah. as well. So... Um... You mentioned the fundraising. That's something we obviously want to talk about. Um, uh, this is your your first uh, fundraising cycle, and you've 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 raised more than a hundred thousand dollars. Where did that money come from? Where were you out seeking those donations, and where did you see the bulk of your support coming from? People first campaign. Yeah, individual contributions. Right, uh, we're uh, uh, knocking on doors, making phone calls, telling our story, our story about change, yeah. our story about how we're up against a constitutional crisis, a story about the housing crisis, a story about the health care crisis. And people are, uh, they are gravitating towards that. Yeah. And they're saying, you're right. Uh, I want to be uh, a part of the solution by giving my money, individual contributions to the campaign instead of, say, um, corporate PACs right. or industry PACs or institutions that are influencing the political process. And it's on the Democratic side and the Republican side. We yeah. know this, right? Uh, and so um, that is where we're, we're, we're looking at to continue on this 
this this movement. I right. mean, that's what this is. It's a movement. It's obvious with the numbers. People are saying time for change. Yeah. Have you developed a policy on where you'll take money from? So where where do you stand on 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 PAC money and 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 the different kinds of of donors that are out there? Have sure. you de- no corporate PAC on- money? We've yeah. received. Uh, people said, corporate PACs have sent us right. money and we've sent it right back. Uh, it is, this is a uh, campaign for the people by the people, uh, and it will continue to be that way. And we will continue to seek individual contributions. And as a result of this, um, two and a half months or so of, of fundraising, uh, we're now seeing people, um, gravitate towards this campaign, uh, and right. contribute. Is there, I mean, it, it always, it always thinks that, Elections don't necessarily come down to money, but certainly money, unfortunately, is a very big part sure. of running for office. Yeah. Do you have a? Do you have a? Do you guys have a number in mind that you're going to need to raise in order to take on again somebody? And I, 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 I have to say, I didn't, I didn't look at at uh, Congressman Doyle's um, current uh, current uh, uh, <laughs> war chest or whatever. I so I, yeah. I, I did, I didn't have that number uh, in front of me, but. It's ample uh, from the last time I checked. So is there a number for you? Is there like a realistic number for you that you need to get to in order to to make this, uh, to get the word out? Yeah. uh, You know, that's unanswered really at the end of the day. We're going to see with the people. I mean, the way things are going now, it could be uh, we can multiply this by five or six or seven. Right. And that's the kind of energy we're we're seeing from this from this process, especially when, when the money comes from individual donors. Yeah. It has to be heart. You have to be heartened by the fact that these are individuals who say, Hey, you know what? We're listening to you. We hear what you're saying. Yeah. That's got to, you know, and like I said, any, you know, <laughs> if you're willing to play ball, the, yeah. the corporate packs are going to throw money at you. That's right. Um, That's right. so it's got to, it's got to hearten you a little bit that in this short period of time, you're able to raise this kind of money just from individual donors. I yeah. Think. We're 10 months out. Yeah. Right. We announced 12 months, yeah. uh, a year out and that quickly we're seeing that type of uh, energy and excitement and, and, and it's indicative of the mood of the country. It's indicative of the mood yeah. of the party yeah. uh, and the progressive, uh, nature that, uh, we want to see in a, in a candidate. Right. And again, it's not mentioned, not good enough just to vote along the lines and, and vote the right way, sure. but to be a true progressive right. uh, out on the streets and, and fighting this fight. Do you think it's a, you mentioned, you kind of mentioned this earlier, you talked about Maxine Waters. It's, do you think it's sort of it's sort of a waste of again being in a safe blue district when you don't have to worry about a Republican challenger coming in and it, yeah. it's sort of a waste of of as you said the bully pulpit do you would you agree with that yeah I mean look this is I mean again safe blue district uh, we should be the loudest yeah I mean this, Pittsburgh is a uh, is a success story in many ways mm-hmm. post industrial uh, and so there's a lot of things out there that we should be uh, 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 telling the world about but then also and that's the positive, but also uh, the negative. We mm-hmm. still have problems in the 18th Congressional District, you know, crumbling infrastructure, right? Skyrocketing housing prices. We still have poverty. Uh, we have these issues that are ongoing, yeah. like, uh, climate change-related issues, right? Environmental issues. Right. Uh, and so what we can do is not only fix those problems with, by having an energetic, loud leader, uh, right. but then we can also tell the world and the rest of the country that we're going to lead on these issues as right. well. So that was actually my next question was to talk about specifically the the issues of the of the 18th district. Um, in my mind, from 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 covering the district for years, affordable housing. I don't know if it's number one, but affordable housing is a major crisis in, in this city, especially it's around the country. But in this city, affordable housing is yeah. a major problem. Yeah, um, talk to me a little bit about you've done some work on this front already. Sure. Talk to me a little bit about what you've done, and talk to me a little bit about what the core issue is here. Sure. 
um, yeah, I've over over a decade now of doing housing advocacy. Um, uh, I got my start doing this on a Fulbright scholarship in Johannesburg, South Africa. I represented, uh, worked alongside uh, South African attorneys representing squatters in eviction proceedings in inner city slums of Joburg um, for about a year, year and a half. And that experience uh, showed me from an international standpoint what uh, dilapidated housing yeah. and, and, and not having access to affordable housing can, can be a problem. Uh, and I came back to the United States. I also represented um, uh, indigent tenants in eviction proceedings in Harlem, New York. And then I also did the same thing here in Pittsburgh. Um, I started the housing rights project at Reed Smith, uh, at the law firm Reed Smith, which is a program where attorneys represent uh, poor tenants in eviction proceedings. Um, and now as a law professor, I actually represent um, a community group uh, in the Hill District. Mm-hmm. And we created one of the first uh, community land trust in an right. African-American neighborhood, which preserves affordable housing in perpetuity right. for, uh, for extended periods of time. Uh, so with that being said, with, with having that background experience and understanding these issues, uh, what I do see here is uh, the problem of uh, rising rents and land values, right? And that in some ways can be can be good um, uh, to help put unproductive property back to use. But yeah. we have the problem of displacement. We have the problem of gentrification. The fabric of communities are being uh, pulled away because families have to move out. We see it in East Liberty. We see it in other neighborhoods uh, throughout the 18th Congressional District. And um, we've got to figure out ways to stem that tide uh, because we're not going to be the cohesive, inclusive uh, Pittsburgh that that we've always been uh, if we allow this to continue to happen. So at this point, there's there's no reversing. Um, I can't – because it's – because again, we're talking about what happened, what started in the Hill District with with with, with the arena, yeah. um, the Civic Arena at that time. And so, wh- how how do we how do we come? What, what's kind of the first step in creating these opportunities? I mean, so obviously you've got we've got a lot of land that we know is is unfortunate. It, it, developers want it because they can they can make a bunch yeah. off it. And when you know when the when the prices were really low and the stock was. Uh, or the housing stock was, you know, degrading. They got in early and sure. bought often. Sure. So how do we how do we sort of at least make gains, if not again reverse this? How, how do we make gains in, in affordable housing in a city? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, there's local and state um, policies that can be implemented, but also from the federal level, yeah. and that's where I'm coming from as mm-hmm. someone who wants to be in Congress. Uh, and 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 so what I would do, you know, there would be a grant housing bargain that I would yeah. bring to the House floor immediately, January 2021. Right. And this would be a, a massive bill mm-hmm. that would appropriate perhaps billions of dollars yeah. to uh, uh, cities and suburban and rural areas uh, to fight this uh, yeah. problem of gentrification, displacement and lack of affordable housing. This would include things like incentives for local municipalities to loosen their land use restrictions. Right. That's one of the problems of affordable housing in this country is that at the local level, there are too many restrictions, density restrictions right. on building. Okay, That's one of the problems. So from the federal level, again, being a loud voice and someone who can push the envelope, incentives would be uh, useful. The other thing here to think about is uh, renter refundable tax credits. There's fundamentally no reason why a homeowner uh, gets some ta- type of rebate, tax subsidies, whatever it may be at the end of the year on their tax returns, mm-hmm. and renters don't. Right. The idea of the American dream is now uh, it's, it's very much a dream. Right. Exactly. Right? exactly. Uh, so families can't save enough money right. to actually purchase a home. So the question then becomes, if you're if you're paying over 30 percent or 40 percent of your household annual income right. on rent, 
That's a significant portion. And millions of Americans are doing that. Thousands here in the 18th Congressional District are doing that, paying right. that much money. Then you should get something back at the end of the year. Right? There'll be a calculation for that. You get a rental refundable tax credit. It's ideas like this from the federal level right. that would help to stave off some of these problems and also lift people out of poverty as well. So there's all kinds of innovative ways. Uh, and we could go on a policy right. discussion right. for days. Uh, and I'll save you. <laughs> I'll save you from the nerdy talk. But yeah. these are the things that we need to be thinking about and fighting for uh, in Congress. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And these, I mean, I, th- I think the most... I don't want to say despicable. I'll say despicable. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a columnist. I can say despicable. Yeah. It, it, there's just there's an inherent racist and classist uh, uh, discrimination that's going on with these kinds of policies. Because if we're saying that you know homeowners, not home renters, should have this these kinds of opportunities, and you know, it's also you know, I mean, we know you know. We're talking. We, we know the we know the lower income folks that we're talking about in these situations, and so these these policies that have kind of been allowed to exist yeah. for too long. I mean, it's just it's, right. and everyone wants to you know, God forbid you you know you, you mention racism because people go, oh no, it's not racist. It's just yeah. Yeah. you know it's the way it's always been, which is racist. So, um, how do you how do you how do you how do you fight that? How do you how do you go against that? Because that's going to be something that. Um, I have no tact. So how do you, how do you walk into something like this and tactfully sort of fight for something like this? Well, look, it's understanding the history. Yeah. I yeah. I teach an upper level course on land, race, and property rights, and we yeah. talk about the history of the Hill District. Yes, uh, 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 urban renewal, and we talk about the the history of the East Liberty urban yeah. renewal as well. You've got to identify, own up to, and acknowledge right. that racist and and classist uh, right. those policies. And figure out ways to uh, not repeat those same mistakes. Right. And in some cases, we've seen some of those same mistakes being made, not just in, in the city of Pittsburgh, but also in other uh, major cities around the country. Um, but it's being able to navigate that conversation with uh, the players, right, right, as well, the developer developer industry, uh, the building association right. industry, uh, and have those conversations and say, look, at the end of the day, uh, when you're building uh, market rate high-rise buildings all throughout the city of Pittsburgh and other major cities – there is a social obligation to be able to provide X number of below market units yeah. for the poor working class uh, who, who otherwise would not be able to live in those areas. Right. Uh, and there are policies throughout the United States that are now starting to come up that actually uh, do mandate some form of um, below market rent, um, uh, below market units. Right. But we need more of that. And we need uh, someone in Congress who's willing to push the envelope on those issues. Yeah, And what we see happen and has happened in, you know, middle to lower class um, African-American neighborhoods and, and, and other ethnicities, you would never see that happen to a middle-class white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. No one yeah. would decide in a middle-class white neighborhood, you know what, we, you know, we want to bring Tony Bennett to town. We need a big arena. Let's put it right in the middle of, yeah. let's put it right in the middle of shady sign. Sure. That's never going to happen. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, it's just, it's years and years. And that's why I, I respect what you're trying to do because it's years and years and years of decades. bad decisions. Yeah. Um, you know, look, I, I, a sister, um, uh, who spent years in public housing, who uh, lost her subsidy and was subject to uh, the private market, rental market, yeah. uh, and difficult to find affordable housing, right. right? I mean, I see it. I know what it's like. Yeah. I've assisted her, helped her move uh, to, to find an affordable place. Right. So it's right here. It's happening in this district. And uh, if you haven't felt it, you haven't seen it, and haven't been affected by it. Yeah. It's hard to figure out. Okay, well, how do we actually fix this problem? Right. 
Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I'm thinking about that. These, these, my sister is one of millions and thousands in this district right. who are afflicted right. by this problem right. of the housing crisis. And we've got to do something about it. And there are even people with these federal subsidies that can't find a place in the city. They're being forced to leave That's the right. neighborhoods that they've known for years and years because there's the housing stock just doesn't exist anymore. That's right. And it's, it's, yeah. so this is the Pittsburgh current podcast and we have been talking to, Jerry Dickinson. He is a uh, candidate for District 18 Congressional District, and um, we are wrapping up here. But I want to play a little bit of uh, of uh, so <laughs> of social social justice lightning round. I want to okay. just talk about a few issues, okay. and you don't have to give like thirty second answers or anything. Please take, you take your time. But yeah. you know, I just want to I want to get your thoughts on on some issues that I know that our readers care about. Sure. Um, the first one, uh, obviously, that I have, and you know, we 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 saw, you know, um, we've seen this issue, you know, um, candidates who who haven't taken the LGBTQ community yeah. into account um, in their campaigns. Where do you stand on LGBTQ LGBTQ equality and safety issues and and, and non discrimination issues? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, been a supporter uh, my entire life of the yeah. LGBT community, right? And look, we've come a long way. In this country, we all go Stonewall. Yeah, right. Greenwich Village in, in New York City, uh, and and the resistance then. And we've come a long way. We've come along with Supreme Court decisions like yeah. Windsor and Obergefell, right? Um, and and th- we have fought for true equality, and we, we're getting and we're making gains. We're making right. progress, and that's imperative. Right. What we also need to realize is that every time we make progress, we are going to be met. Right. With resistance right and it's happening now right uh, on these issues and so it's incredibly important to me that we have a leader who is willing to fight that resistance now right. um and you know w- w- we make gains on same-sex marriage right right uh which is fantastic uh, but we shouldn't have to be in a situation where there are members of congress who voted for doma right 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 and some of them are still <laughs> in still power sure. yes absolutely uh it shouldn't have to take necessarily just a Supreme Court decision for someone to realize well, maybe that maybe I was wrong. Right. Right. Um, that's important. Right. We need someone who's already ahead of the game, who's sure. already the progressive yeah. on those issues. And there's, look, these they're still permeating. For example, look, look at the Fair Housing Act at the federal level. Yeah. Still does not expressly uh, right. uh, prohibit discrimination uh, 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 against sexual orientation right. and gender identity. Right. Look at Title Seven. Still doesn't do that. I mean, now, of course, our federal courts are, are interpreting some of those uh, words, say, uh, familial status or sex, to, to show that there are some restraints on this. But, but that is what we're members of Congress need to be on the front line saying, let's change this law now because right. it needs to be done. Right? That's true equality, and that's, that's true advocacy on it's, those issues. It, it, it seems like the fact that we, we yet don't have a non-discrimination policy against LGBTQ citizens, but, it, it, it's, it's mind-boggling to me. I mean, you can get married, uh, you, uh, a couple can get married uh, on Saturday, put a, put a wedding picture on their desk on Monday and be fired. That's right. And they, they, don't, they, don't, have a, they, don't, have a, they don't have an argument. Look, this, is, this is, again, going back to why we can't wait right. to have someone fighting for this in Congress yeah. every day on these particular issues that you just talked about, right? Yeah. And the same thing in employment at the federal level, federal statutes that are not providing these types of, of uh, protections. Right. Uh, and it's at the local level here as well. Look, the, the transgender community, we have uh, recently in Pennsylvania, the name change law that violates the privacy right. of transgender who want to 
uh, uh, get their name changed, right? right. Uh, and you know, of course, by being in that situation, you're forced to uh, 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 to disclose. Uh, uh, your identity, right, to right. police officers who may be harassing you, right, right? or other individuals, right? Th- these things. So it, we still we have a we have a ways to go. And right. I think it's important to uh, uh, realize that and say, I'm going to fight that fight uh, uh, to the end uh, and fight this resistance and also continue to make progress right. uh, on the issues that matter. I realize my lightning round isn't very lightning, so let's go Sorry. to the next. No, no, that's my, <laughs> that's listen, my, it's my fault. It's fine. Women's reproductive health. Let's. I mean, that's again. We're talking about ass- assaults on very basic rights of of yeah. You know, who's in control of someone else's body? Absolutely. Yeah. This is look five four Supreme Court decision. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, I teach these cases, the students, and you know, start to think about 40, 50 years of yeah. precedence um, possibly being overturned. And it is absolutely frightening. Yeah. Um, this is, again, where we make progress, but then we're met with massive resistance. Uh, the Hyde Amendment. Yeah. I have never supported the Hyde Amendment. The very idea that you are going to prohibit federal funding for abortion at the local and state level. Who is that going to affect? Low-income mothers? Right. Low-income women? African-American women? Um, those are the policies that have been put in place and have been voted on over and over and over again by members of Congress. Uh, and we can't have it anymore. Right. right? It's, it's, it's amendments like that that have to, um, um, have to end. Right. Um, Immigration, we talked a little bit about, yeah. um, it, I, I, like I said, somebody like yourself who this is, this is what you're doing. I can't imagine the frustration that you feel over, over what's going on with our immigration policy. And then again, the border, the border wall. I'd be at situation. the border right now. Yeah. Right. I was in Congress. I'd yeah. be down at the border right now. Absolutely. Uh, there's no excuse. Right. Uh, uh, figuring out what the, uh, what the hell's going on. Right. Um, this is. Many of the immigration issues that we're dealing with today are are problems that are being caused by the Trump administration, right? Uh, we have a, a situation where the president is um, conjuring up emergencies that aren't really emergencies. Now, do we have many migrants coming to the United States at the, the port of entries? Yes, we do. We do. Uh, but it's on the Trump administration to have uh, humane right. policies in place, right. uh, humane uh, uh, members of the administration who are making decisions uh, uh, for the welfare of those families. This is children. This is these are mothers. Yeah. Like I, I'm a father. Yeah. I have a 19 month old daughter. Right. Uh, this is unacceptable. And so on the immigration side of things, um, you know, again, this fight. This is a long term battle. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's it's along the border. Right. It's a it's it's the travel ban. It's the border wall. It's all these different issues that are that are ongoing. And, um, uh, uh, you know, I'm 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 sick of seeing this happen over and over again with the Trump administration. And uh, I would, of course, be that loud voice in Congress to to make change on immigration. Another one I had with well, one of the last, last one I had here was healthcare. But you talked about need for a single payer system. So let me ask you actually ask you about the Supreme Court decision on gerrymandering, which yeah, <laughs> I haven't been so I haven't been I, as angry at a, at, a, at a decision uh, as I had about that. Yes, tell me a little bit about. So that. you know, again, that's these are these are constitutional knowledge that I, I, I teach uh, as a law professor, right? Yeah. And and um, you know, Justice Kagan's dissent I think is on point in yeah. that this is 
the long-term precedent is that's the political question and that should be left to the legislatures. Well, guess what? You leave it to the legislatures, yeah. then you have uh, violations of uh, people's right to vote right. in many ways. Um, so that, that decision was the wrong decision. Right. And one thing just to keep in mind, though, with this is that, look, we have state Supreme Courts who have found these maps to be uh, unconstitutional under state constitutional law. Right. In Pennsylvania, we had that. And that's right. precisely why I'm running in the 18th congressional district instead of the 14th. Right. right. So we do have uh, ways around some of these problems that the Supreme Court yes. uh, is or causing. But it, it's look, this is democracy. And we're talking about people's rights uh, uh, and an ability to be uh, a voice in yeah. the electoral process um, being diminished. Yeah. And uh, and this is a long term project, by the way, by the Republican Party. Right. Of of holding on to power because they know that demographically over the next 20, 25 years, they're yeah. not going to have a hold on legislative power. And so they're gerrymandering. They're stacking the federal courts. Right. With yeah. conservative judges to policy make from the bench. So this is it's even bigger than that. It's, yeah. it's even bigger. It's a long term project. And we need someone who's going to fight that battle yeah um yeah i i before the change i I lived in a congressional district that stretched from the ohio border to johnstown that was my that was my congressional (laughs) district district. it just it never made sense that's right no it does not it it absolutely does not make sense and uh, it's obvious that the the republicans are playing a a game uh, a long-term game yeah hold on to power jerry dickinson as we as we close out i just want to ask you here um so I assume you've got a you've got a mapped out process here. What's next for you in terms of, of this campaign? What's 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 next on, on the agenda for you? Look, we're uh, we're having fun yeah. right now. Uh, we've got a, a, a progressive crowd, a progressive campaign team uh, who are excited about this this um, the progress we've already made. Um, and look, we're heading into the summer months now, uh, and but we're we're going to be pivoting um, uh, to you know the communities. Right, we've been already. Uh, in the communities, having conversations with the voters, right, and understanding what the issues are, and and that I think is in, in, imperative for congressmen and congresswomen right. is to be able to listen, is to go into the communities, sit down, and have that conversation about what is it that you want to see change for. And we're doing that already. And we'll continue to do that as we head into the summertime and then into the fall. Uh, and then, you know, it's full steam ahead. Uh, it's gonna, you know, we've got 10 months to go. Yeah. Uh, it's gonna fly. I think it is gonna fly. Uh, this is, uh, this is an extremely serious ca- uh, campaign and we're looking forward to Jerry Dickinson. I hope you'll come back, uh, throughout the campaign uh, and visit with us. And I like to give, we have, we have a wide range of voters out there. So I like to give all the pertinent information <laughs> for my English major nerd friends, your <laughs> wife's name. It's is, just Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson. That's right. I mean, you got, you yeah. gotta, you gotta. You, like is, I said, I do my, I do my deep research, and so is, yeah, Emily Dickinson. That's right. We have uh, my daughter's Aria, A R I A. We have a dog named Denzel. Uh, so and uh, and I'm Randall from This Is Us. So so we have so we have quite the quite the characters on yeah. the team. My wife is she's great. She's a teacher for the deaf. Yes, um, yep. and she's she's an amazing, uh, so smart, intelligent, uh, and she's also someone like myself. Yeah, she's an educator. But uh, she's compassionate and she's passionate yeah. about changing the lives of others. And she's really uh, a special person. She's part of this campaign as well, which is fantastic. Perfect. Jerry Dixon, thank you very Great. much again. Thank you. Uh, this has it. been, thank you guys for hanging out with us. This has been the Pittsburgh Current podcast, and we will see you next week. Have a happy 4th of July. A better alternative Giving Pittsburgh A 
better alternative. This show is a member of the Sorgatron Media Podcast Network. Find out more at sorgatronmedia.com.